At one time, being a June bride was something to aspire to. Young people would set their sights on the first full month of the summer to start their lives together. But today, June has taken on a new title, Pride Month. It's a celebration of the antithesis of the biblical nuclear family. There's a lot for us to know about Pride Month, where it came from, where it started, and where we are today, and how believers should process this very public spectacle. So let's talk. After World War II, America began to experience some incredible growth as a nation as it set its sights on conquering new economic opportunities as one of the few remaining economic superpowers around the globe. There were a lot of social changes in America as the nation wrestled with subjects that it had never had to deal with before. One of those subjects was homosexuality. In the 1950s and 60s, homosexuality was actually a criminal offense. And New York City, in 1964, set its sights on the World's Fair, and local politicians uh, who were up against re-elections responded to the calls to clean up the city. There was perversion, there was crime, and there were unsanitary conditions as the world turned its gaze on the Big Apple. A few years later, things reached a fever pitch in the homosexual oasis of Greenwich Village in what we call now the Stonewall Riots. You see, New York state law, under the New York Liquor Authority at the time, had a rule that when a gay person caused a disturbance in a bar, it would be grounds for the, for the closing of the establishment. This naturally made bar and restaurant owners leery about starting an enterprise that could be shut down by the government. That means that there was a prime opportunity for organized crime to make a lot of money. Bars like the Stonewall were operated illegally by mafia and had unsanitary conditions with no regulations at all. The mafia and the police worked together to make sure that the money kept flowing. They would work together, and it was commonly raided by police who were paid off by mob bosses and was a hive of unbridled sexual activity. In a PBS documentary entitled Stonewall Uprising, American Experience, patrons described nightly activity at the Stonewall as hundreds of gay men would utilize semi-trailers in back alley parking lots to trade sexual favors. These trailers were used during the day to transport meat from the local slaughterhouses to restaurants. And by their description, they were dark, filthy, and reeked of dead flesh. Police responded several times a night to places like the Stonewall. And in some cases, they wouldn't simply just arrest gay men, they would use brutal means. It was common for people to be beaten with billy clubs and with nightsticks. It's in front of this backdrop that the gay community decided to fight back on June 28, 1969, as patrons of the Stonewall Bar gathered bricks and other items and began to riot against police. The riot continued for several days until finally concessions were made. One year later, on the anniversary of the riots in 1970, Patrons gathered and they participated in the first ever parade in New York City, walking in solidarity with those who had stood in opposition to police brutality. Soon, other cities joined the cause, and there were parades in other cities. The movement gained traction, and over the last half century, pride parades have become a staple of American life. They highlight gay personalities and historical achievements. But the roots of these events can be found in that seedy bar in New York City. This is where the supposed inspiring story of Pride Month comes from. And then there's the flag. 
The flag is something that has been, uh, been created into a symbol of the gay rights movement. But you might be surprised to know that there are actually many rainbow flags, not just one. The use of it actually predates the homosexual movement by more than 500 years. It has been used all over the world as a symbol of various things, but most prominently as a representation of unity in spite of diversity, especially when connected to an unjust cause. One of the earliest uses of the rainbow was used by the Protestant reformer Thomas Munzer. Munzer was the leader of the 16th century peasant rebellion that emerged to fight against the abusive coalition between the Roman Catholic Church and local nobles. Munzer put the rainbow on his banner with this proclamation, This is the sign of the eternal covenant of God. It was a statement that God should be revered above men. If you remember, the rainbow also is a sign of the covenant between God and His people. In Genesis 9, verses 12 and 13, after the flood, God used the rainbow as a symbol to tell Noah as an eternal sign that he would never again flood the earth. The covenant that God had made with Noah that day would eventually lead to the fulfilled promise that God would make a way for all of creation to be made new again. Well, the movement expanded after Stonewall. Other groups began to organize themselves. One of the organizations that formed during the time of the riots was the Mattachine Society, a pro-gay organization whose goal was to legalize homosexuality for consenting adults. Founded by a group of disenfranchised communists during the Red Scare of the 1950s, the Mattachine Society sought to use their other ostracized groups to rally political purposes for their own causes. President Richard Inman gave an interview three years before the riots at Stonewall for WTVJ in Miami. And in the interview, he stated exactly what the movement wanted. He says this, and I quote, The present laws give the adult homosexual only the choice, to simplify the matter, heterosexual and legal, or homosexual and illegal. This, to a homosexual, is no choice at all. In response to the question from the interviewer of what kind of laws that they were after, he responded with this, well, let me say, first of all, what types of laws we are not after. Because there has been much to do that the society was in favor of the legalization of marriage between homosexuals and the adoption of children and such as that, and that is not at all factual at all. Homosexuals do not want that. You might find some fringe characters someplace who say that's what he wants. Well, it's worth noting here that President Inman, in his generation, was selling us a false bill of goods. The truth is that the American people have been sold a lie. We can see that now as we look back through the lens of history. Equality is not the goal. It never has been the goal. It is the forced acceptance that we should blindly accept our broken condition and never actually com uh, come and confront the parts of us that need healing. Now, over the course of the last 50 years, the Mattachine Society has had leadership debates about their tactics and mission, but they have been consistent in one thing. They have been an outspoken advocate for complete legal equality of the LGBTQ community. In the late 1980s, a new term emerged to represent the homosexual community, the acronym LGB, which stood for lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Soon, other groups were added to the list, transgender, questioning, and intersex. Others also were included who uh, affirm non-traditional sexual lifestyles. These are called allies. All of these terms have combined to make up what we now know as the LGBTQIA community. Well, what does the Bible say about this? How should we look at 
this whole movement that's happened in our culture and around the world? Well, it can be easy for us to think that the first century church can't relate to where we are today, but that's just simply not true because people stay the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Scripture tells us that. And the Apostle Paul gives us some great guidance about not only how we should understand the world as we observe it, but also uh, how we should respond to it. And the church in the ancient city of Ephesus is the greatest example because they faced many of the same issues that we face today. Simply put, human nature never changes. Let me give you some context about this. Well, one of the most prominent cities in the whole Roman Empire in the ancient world was the city of Ephesus. And it sits right on the coast in modern-day Turkey. It was the site of the Temple of Diana. You might know her by her Greek name, Artemis, where pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire would make pilgrimages and they would come and they would worship. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Hundreds of eunuch priests and virgin priestesses and religious prostitutes served the goddess of fertility. Worship rituals revolved around sexual acts with the temple prostitutes, sacrifices of grain, money, and alcohol. Some historical accounts even report that of the worship of Diana entailed worshipers taking hallucinogenic drugs in order to be whipped up into a hedonistic sexual frenzy. And in some cases, men would become so overwhelmed with the event that they would castrate themselves and then they would lay their severed sexual organs on the altar of the pagan god, defacing their image. In other words, sin takes us to dark places. It takes more than we want to give and makes us pay more than we want to pay. Just like the patrons of the dark streets of New York City in the 1960s, the people of Ephesus were lost and consumed in their sinfulness. But make no mistake, this was not a backwater town. It was a city of over 300,000 people. And just as an example, as a testament to its size, the remains of the amphitheater in Ephesus still remain today, and it's estimated that it could hold up to 25,000 people. So for reference, most professional indoor sports arenas today hold around 20,000 people. The amphitheater in Ephesus would have held more than the BOK Center, the Paycom Center, or even Madison Square Garden. It was a massive cultural hub. Paul worked in Ephesus for two years, teaching and preaching and performing signs through the Holy Spirit. He became so famous, in fact, that the pagans tried to invoke his name in exorcisms. The city almost revolted in Acts chapter 19 because of the imp impact of Paul's ministry on the culture. Consider that, that the mere presence of the people of God nearly overturned the city. Well, the challenge is that 35 years after Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, we have another warning. You see... In the second chapter of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John has a vision and Jesus comes to him and he warns him about the consequences of the church at Ephesus. And he says this, he says that they have forgotten where they've come from. Jesus says in verse 4 that they had forgotten their first love. They had essentially gotten so good at having church that they had forgotten that they actually were sinners themselves. But what are some of the key challenges that they faced? There was sexual promiscuity and pagan worship. There were divisions over gender roles within the family and in church leadership. There were false teachers. And there were isolations from society for not conforming to, to pagan worship and social norms that was integrated into everyday life and economics. Imagine not being able to buy your groceries because you won't pinch incense to the goddess Diana or to Caesar. Imagine not being able to buy things if you didn't have a card that was verified by an agency 
or a rainbow flag on your lapel. Paul gives the Ephesian church instruction that we would do well to hear. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks about the transformation that God has done in the lives of his people through the salvation in Jesus Christ. And he begins by saying this in verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul tells them that they were once dead in their sins. They were lifeless. They were inanimate. They had no capacity for good. Their very nature was wicked and broken. And without God, there was no hope for them. But he continues in verse 4, and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because his great love for, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that at the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it is only through God's mercy that we've been saved, and only through His mercy that we are, while we were still rebelling, He showed us grace and mercy. And in the process of doing that, He has raised us up to be an example to our culture around us of the greatness of His mercy. Well, how many of you know that God is not the only one who can elevate people? That if we are not careful about the way that we live our lives, that another influence can raise us up and put us on display. That if we are not displaying the goodness of God, the enemy is more than happy to display a wicked and broken person who's lashing out in fear and in hatred. Paul continues, he finishes with verse 10 where he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says that we are his workmanship. He highlights how God uses them to impact the culture. There's only one other place in Scripture where this word workmanship is used, and that is in Romans chapter 1. If you remember, Romans 1 is the famous passage of Scripture where Paul is talking about the consequences of sin on creation, and he highlights by using the example, the illustration of homosexuality. This is commonly a passage that's quoted about the, the way that God looks at, at, at human sexuality. But more than anything, I want you to focus on what he says in verse 20. In the context of all of that lesson, he says this, He's describing the testimony that God has placed in front of the world in order that everyone would know who He is. And Paul writes, and he says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says the things that are made. This is a use of that same noun again that's used in Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, God has not only made himself known through the obvious example of creation and the complexities of the natural world, but more than anything else, he makes himself known through his workmanship, that is, his children. He has created them, in the words of Ephesians, in Christ Jesus for good works. That is, to live as expressions of his nature in a fallen world. You see, even the name Christian comes from a word that means little Christ someone who bears the image of God. This is why the fruits of the Spirit are all responses to hostility. When, the, when a culture that is hostile to the people of God interacts with the people of God, they're not met with hate and anger and vice and protest. They are met instead with love and joy and peace. And let's not forget patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness for a generation that doesn't know Him 
gentleness, and self-control. You see, a Christian's life is meant to be a diorama of God's character. As the world looks in, they see the goodness and the grace of God. There's a number of ways that we can respond to Pride Month. As the world celebrates ungodly lifestyles, some will choose to protest and cause tension, and that's their prerogative. Others will choose differently. My encouragement to you is to remember where you have come from and the nastiness of the sin that God has saved you from so that you can remember to see someone in the midst of their darkness with hope and mercy so that when the culture looks at you, they will not see a whitewashed version of themselves, but instead they will see a true reflection of the Savior that we profess to serve. If we're going to live biblically, we must live biblically. We can choose how we want to spend our money, we can choose what stores we want to support, those ones that, that also share our values. But we must be very careful what words we place in the mouth of Jesus by how we live our lives. The danger that we face as the people of God is that we would live our whole lives and we would forget where we come from and find our ways, find our way to heaven and hear our Lord Jesus tell us that along the way we had forgotten our first love. That is the mercy and grace of God. God forbid that we should show up to the gates of heaven expecting a VIP entrance only to find that we do not fit there in the culture of heaven. Scripture tells us that we are to walk worthy of the calling. That means that we hear truth, we speak truth, and we live truth, all while paying attention to the fact that God has raised us up to be examples of His grace. This is Truth Currents. 